We don't have to take the decline of American manufacturing as a given. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. When it comes to assessing the state of American manufacturing, you'll hear arguments on both sides. Yes, it's still the strongest sector of the U.S. economy. And yes, it's seen the loss of millions of jobs over the last decade and a half. One proposed solution to the crisis, called smart manufacturing, looks to technology for an answer. But my guest today believes that smart manufacturing is, well, kind of dumb, at least when it's not accompanied by a focus on the people on the factory floor. Stephen L. Blue is the author of American Manufacturing 2.0, What Went Wrong and How to Make It Right. But he's no academic viewing the situation from afar. He's also CEO of Miller Ingenuity, a global manufacturer of locomotive and freight car parts. So he has firsthand experience in running a production facility efficiently, competitively, and humanely. We'll hear his advice on how others can adopt his techniques and what he means when he talks of creating a culture by design, not default. So here is my conversation with Stephen Blue. Steve Blue, welcome to the program. Well, thanks, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. You describe in this book a situation where American manufacturing is in decline. I believe you reference 5 million manufacturing jobs lost since the year 2000, kind of a dire situation. And yet in the foreword to your book, American Manufacturing 2.0, SAP CEO Bill McDermott says that manufacturing is a missed comeback. So which is it? I'd have to defer a little bit to Bill because he's running a, I don't know, what, a 10 or $12 billion global corporation. Uh, although, on the other hand, it's not a manufacturer. So I, I think while his views are very valid, I think they, they don't exactly track with what's happening in the manufacturing world. And the opinions do vary as to whether manufacturing is on the way back or not. And the evidence that I use is what's the job count in manufacturing now compared to what it was 20 years ago? And everybody knows the answer to that. So. I don't know how it can be coming back when the jobs are down. And, of course, manufacturing remains by far the the biggest part of the American economy. But I guess that doesn't excuse the fact that we have lost a good number of jobs to overseas to offshoring. That's right. I mean, uh, there's no denying the facts. The three biggest employers right now are in the service sector in the United States. Walmart, uh, Yum Brands, and uh, I can't remember who the third one was. They're all in the service industry. If you dial back to 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, the three biggest companies, uh, employers in the world were General Motors, Exxon Mobil, and third, but the manufacturing company. And so the, clearly we've moved away from manufacturing in terms of the largest employers and toward uh, service employers, which with generally lower wages. If you look at the wage difference between those two sectors and, and adjusted for inflation, if you will, the service industry is, I don't know, 9 or $10 an hour now, and good manufacturing jobs are 20 or $22 an hour. 
There's been a lot of buzz these days about the concept of so-called smart manufacturing, but you aren't exactly so gung-ho on that concept, I, I get the feeling, as, as some people. What is your take on smart manufacturing? I did a piece the other day, I, I think it was Forbes or, or Fortune or whatever, and the title of it was, Why Smart Manufacturing is a Dumb Idea. And the reason that I wrote that piece, and it's gotten a lot of interest in a lot of phone calls and subsequent interviews, is because people who believe that the answer to a manufacturing resurgence is in machines, they're all wrong. The answer to a resurgence is in people. And by the way, I have smart manufacturing in my, my company, and that is a part of what you need to have to be successful. But you don't start that at the top, you start that at the bottom. And you don't start that with machines, you start it with people. If you have dumb people in your organization, how can you have smart manufacturing? And, Mr. CEO, if you have dumb people in your organization, it's your fault and not theirs. Well, I want to ask you to define that a little bit more, but I want to, before that, just ask you, basically, what is your definition of American Manufacturing 2.0? What justifies adding a new issue or a new version of American Manufacturing in your mind? There's some uh, man, American Manufacturing 4.0s out there already, so I, I'm not uh, 2.0 may have been outdated by the time the ink dried, but to me... If you're going to take American manufacturing and, and make it better, make it bigger, bring American jobs back to the United States, you have to do things differently than you did on 1.0 or manufacturing 0.0. And 0.0 was, well, maybe because of the World Trade Organization, uh, maybe as a result of it, who knows, the leadership in American manufacturing companies gave up on their workforce. And they started viewing their workforce, particularly in the manufacturing sector, their labor as expendable assets, and well, they should have been uh, looking at them as renewable resources. And so to me, the, the restart, if you will, Bob, in American manufacturing has to be with, with a new compact with the workforce, new compact with how you view your workforce and how you utilize your workforce, instead of the old compact, which, well, for the last 20 or 30 years has been, well, you know yourself chase it to the cheapest labor in the world and to the best tax havens in the world and, uh, and everything else will take care of itself. I say we need to restart that whole thinking process and there, therefore that's how I got to 2.0. But how is the turn toward automation a mistake? Is it not inevitable? Is it not, at least from the owner of the company's standpoint, the way to go? It does cut costs. It does increase productivity. It does reduce the number of bodies needed and the number of pensions paid and wages paid and benefits paid. I mean, I'm just trying to think like a captain of industry here. It looks good to me. What's wrong with that? Hey, I'm one of them. There's not a thing wrong with it. But let me go back to my earlier point. You don't start your revolution in your factory, in your manufacturing factory, with smart manufacturing. You start it with smart people. And then you move to smart manufacturing. As I said, I've got smart manufacturing. Everything from order inquiry to accounts receivable all the way down the line is, is almost completely automated. And I have a very, very, very efficient workforce. But if you choose to just put your future in machines and in technology and ignore the people side of it, I, I think that's a big mistake. You talk about people being dumb. I, I'm sure you're not referring to their native intelligence. I think you're referring to the way in which their intelligence is or is not utilized in the workplace. That's so right. what do you mean when you say dumb? How are we not tapping into the real resources of our nominally intelligent workforce? Well, what happens is not every company, but a lot of companies, employees check their brains at the door. And in a lot of companies, employees are more interested in getting to the bowling alley than they are in going to work. And that's because the environment that has been created for them 
has been, I'll tell you what to do, the, the old command and control environment, I'll tell you what to do and you'll do it, as opposed to people that decide what they wanted. I'll give you an example, Bob. Uh, in my factory, uh, our employees are almost completely autonomous from uh, any sort of supervision, if you will. They get together every day. They, they know what the order intake was for that day. They decide, based on that, what do we have to build? They organize themselves around building it. They make the thing happen. They ship it out, and, and there's no so-called management intervention along the way. And that's the kind of workforce that you need. You have to have people who are engaged, enlightened, and energized. And that's all uh, created by the culture that the CEO decides he or she wants to have in the organization. And what I call cultures by design, not by default. Most companies have cultures by default, not design. Their cultures are what their cultures are. And the guys at the top don't really even know what it is. Let me give you an example. I hear this a lot where people say culture can't possibly have that big of an impact on a business. And to that, I say, I'll give you two words. These days, it's an easy answer. Wells Fargo. Now, you just look at what happened to Wells Fargo, right? If, if you look at their values, Bob, their corporate website, one of them is, I don't know, high ethics. And the other one is doing right for the customers. And, well, how could they possibly have a culture of high ethics and do what's right for the customers and create 2 million ghost accounts? Well, the fact that those are good bumpers, what I call bumper sticker values. They look good on the corporate wall, and the CEO may have even believed that was the culture that he had, but that's the real culture behind Wells Fargo is make money at all costs. And that's why I say companies have to have cultures by design, not by default. Once you create a culture that, that allows people to flourish and be energized and be energetic and turn them loose, you would be amazed at what they can do. In the glory days of American manufacturing, however, where there was a lot of union jobs working in places like automotive plants, everybody had their specific job. There wasn't a lot of creativity involved. There wasn't a lot of freedom in what they what they did. And I imagine there was a certain amount of alienation too. But that we refer to that as as the the great days of American manufacturing. So it it worked back then. But I guess you're saying that that concept can't work now, right? Well, it was easier back then. You were competing uh, between states, not between countries. And you were competing for goods and services that 20, 20, 30 years ago that exist now didn't even exist then. And so it was really easy. Anybody who had a lot of capital and could hire a workforce and buy machines could make things happen. Now it's a whole lot tougher because these days, Bob, my competition can go buy the same machine tools that I have. My competition can install the same smart factory that I have. My competition has access to the same markets, same raw materials, and all of that. What my competition does not have access to is the phenomenal culture that's been created in my company. And that's what I say to CEOs. The one thing that you can do that cannot be duplicated by your competition is a killer culture. I want to explore a little bit more about what you mean about culture, because this is kind of a squishy term sometimes. It's hard to figure to what degree a CEO actually has the power to define the culture in a company. And then, as you point out in the case of Wells Fargo, once you have defined what appears to be a good culture, it may not take, if you're, you know, as you go down through the levels. So I'm trying to understand how a CEO can, number one, instill that culture and, 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 number two, make it percolate throughout the organization. Do you have specific recommendations or examples where that was successfully done? Sure, I, I point to my own company. Embodied in my book are what I call the seven values of ingenuity, and uh, those are the 
the cultures are formed by values. And when you look at that model of the seven values of ingenuity, if you implement though as a CEO, if you install those values in the order that they appear in the right sequence, that's how you create a killer culture. Now, this is a good point, Bob, because a lot of CEOs don't want to be they don't want to touch culture because what you like what you said, it's squishy. And CEOs, you know, I'm one of them. We're hard guys, we're action guys, we want to get things done, so just give me the hard stuff. Give me the, tell me about how do I do acquisitions, how do I do marketing alliances, how do I do research and development, all that hard stuff, because that's easy, check it off the box, you're done, move on to the next thing. Uh, cultures are really, really hard to create and fashion, and you have to start at the very top. If the CEO isn't on board with the kind of culture he wants in his company, one that serves the shareholders, one that serves the employees, and one that serves, of course, the customers, but also the communities in which they serve. He's got to be on board with it, he or she. So you have to start at the very top. And let's just assume, you know, I have uh, in my book the seven values of ingenuity. Those are right for my company, and many of those would be right for other companies too, but not necessarily all of them. So you start by defining what kind of values do I really want. And then to the point you made earlier, Bob, you have to go layer by layer. You have to start at the people that report to the CEO, and if they don't embody that culture, and if they're not bought into that culture, and if they don't exhibit that culture every day of their working lives, then that's not going to work. So you have to start there, and if, uh, if they're not on board, then you have to replace them one at a time until you get people that are on board. And then you move down to the next level. And oh, I hope most companies don't have more than three or four levels between the top and the bottom. And that's how you do it, one level at a time. And then you have to reinforce it. See, what happens is policies and practices in an organization, they may not create a culture, but they darn sure support it. Wells Fargo, uh, I'll use that example again. They had policies and practices that rewarded people for defrauding their customers because otherwise it couldn't occur. And what most companies will do is they'll have a culture that says, we want to be this, we want, we want teamwork, right? I, that's a, I love this one. We want teamwork in our company, yet every person is uh, individually uh, appraised. Everyone is compensated, every department is compensated based on their own individual achievements without respect to what might happen to another organization, and yet they talk about teamwork. If teamwork's going to be one of your values, you have to organize people around teams, you have to reward them for team efforts, you have to compensate them for team efforts, and you got to get rid of the whole individual compensation and evaluation system. That's just one example how policies and practices in a company can either support or wreck a uh, culture that you're trying to install. Do you think that worker morale these days is being degraded by the growing gap between CEO pay and pay down at the at the bottom worker level? Or is money not really an issue in the question of culture in an organization? A friend of mine once told me that uh, if money isn't number one, I don't know what number two is. Money is very important. But <laughs> I'll give you an example. A recent study done by Harvard of uh, 20,000 employees on uh, satisfaction measures, not, money num wasn't the number one thing. The number one thing was respect by my supervisor. Money was like second or third. So if you don't treat your employees with respect, it won't matter how much you pay them. Pay in almost every uh, survey that's been done is up in the top three, but it's not in the top one. It's almost always respect. To the issue of the so-called widening gap between the CEO and the, and the bottom uh, level, yeah, I don't know what to say about that. In public companies, it's a very public number. Everybody knows it. Uh, are, are the CEOs 
and some of these public companies worth as much as they're getting paid? I don't know. That's not for me to say. That's for the shareholders to determine. Well, you do kind of say it when you call CEOs fat, dumb, and happy. I yeah, mean, the yeah. fat and happy part must have something to do with compensation, right? Well, you know, I'm glad you brought so. that up because actually uh, the title I wanted for my book was Fat, Dumb, and Happy CEOs, What Went Wrong and How to Make It Right in Manufacturing. Uh, the publisher didn't like the fat, dumb, and happy, and they, they changed <laughs> that to American. And I had to go along with it. They changed it to American Manufacturing 2.0. That is the problem in a lot of companies. Not every company, the, the CEO is fat, dumb, and happy. They sit there and they go, you know, I got my kingdom going here. Everything's going okay. And I don't see much going on in the horizon. No reason to take any risk. Just relax and, and, and go with the flow. And then all of a sudden they get broadsided and they get blindsided. Well, that's what happened to Wells Fargo. There's got to be a cost to culture. It may be worth Absolutely. paying, but there's got to be a cost to it. It's got to be times when you have to make the choice between culture and profit. Um, now, in the case of Wells Fargo, that might have meant not not doing what they were doing, but is that not the case and that sometimes that, that happens? Absolutely, there's a cost to culture because when you put in these values and you support these values, there's going to be a, a great expense in the beginning. And it's a soft cost in terms of return because you can't, you don't see it immediately. I'll give you an example. I have in my fa- I created them in the middle of my factory, what we call a creation station. It's what I call a Google-like campus inside a manufacturing facility. It's the only one in Minnesota, maybe the only one in the country. You walk into this space, Bob, and it's like it's like walking into the the Google campus. It really is. It's very high tech. It's designed to promote thought. It's designed to promote innovation. It's totally connected to the Internet where we can collaborate with customers and and other companies and our employees all over the world. And our employees are expected to go back into that space and spend about 20% of their time thinking about things. Now, that space cost me about a half a million dollars to build. Uh, And most CEOs, by the way, wouldn't do it. They wouldn't bat an eyelash on uh, spending a half a million dollars on a CNC machine, right? Because there's a certain mm-hmm. return from that that they can they can measure, they can plot, and they know it, what it is in advance. If you do what I did with the uh, what we call a creation station, you have to take a leap of faith that you, that you believe that the output from people getting together and, and innovating and thinking about things is going to be there. And, and of course, I've had that cost of that space has been pay, paid for fivefold ever since then and then and ever since then the payback it just keeps on paying back every year because they do go back there they do make improvements that are sometimes small many times are incremental but sometimes they're just huge all right but let's think for a moment about the plight of the ceo of especially a public company doing all these wonderful things sometimes it's going to cut into profits it's going to maybe pay off at some point in the future but Breathing down the neck of the CEO are the shareholders, is Wall Street, is the demand for quarterly improvements, quarter after quarter, year after year. They don't take the long-term view that's saying these are going to pay off. We want dividends now. We want results now. How does a CEO cope with that pressure and at the same time enact the measures that you recommend that they should be enacting? I don't run a public company, so the, the Wall Street pressure uh, and the pressure on earnings and the, and the analysts and all that is something that I don't have. But I do have shareholder pressure where uh, most of the things that I've done that were maybe you could call them controversial, but that were certainly new and different in terms of what had been done before I took over this company 20 years ago, it was a sales job. CEOs have to sell the shareholders, they have to sell, they have to sell Wall Street, they have to sell the analysts on what they're doing and why they're doing it. In the long term, we're all dead. So we have to keep that in mind. 
and I understand the pressure in quarterly earnings, but uh, the, you have to buy yourself some time as a CEO to make these improvements uh, uh, kick in and show a return. And the only way I know of to do that is to continually sell it, sell it, sell it. I'll give an example. We moved into a very, very high t- technology space about a year and a half ago, something we've never done before, and it's very expensive in terms of the development of this product line. My shareholders and my board were looking at that in the beginning, and they, and they were saying, and I don't blame, they're going, whoa, wait a minute, it's a lot of money, never done it, a lot of risk, and all that was true, although I, I would argue is manageable risk. And I went, every chance I got, just to use this as an example, Bob, every opportunity I could take to, to uh, sell it and to promote it and to tell people why it was good and uh, how the return would be there every time we were at a trade show, I was recording, uh, I had a videographer rec- recording the customer's reaction to the product, and then I was promoting that and sending the video clips to the board and to the shareholders, and every single opportunity I get, I promote that platform until it becomes a reality, and uh, you, know, you know what they say, you're wrong until you're right. You think this concept, your ideas, scale? I mean, Miller Ingenuity, I don't know where you fall in terms of revenues, whether you consider yourself to be small, medium, or large, but you certainly aren't Fortune 50. When you get up to that type of level, do you think that it's still possible to enact these measures and to create true community within these monstrous global corporations? I think it's very difficult. You know, I, I have to be a realist on that. You get a company that's got, well, what's Wells Fargo's have, hundreds of thousands of people. Again, their culture is so deeply entrenched for so many decades, it's probably not possible. The bigger the company is, the harder it is to be sure. Uh, and I would say if, if you're a Fortune 50 company, you got what you got, and there's probably not a whole lot you can do about it. And uh, your predecessors built it, and the predecessors' predecessors built it, and the inertia of that would be just almost impossible to change. Bottom line, though, you still think we're going to have American manufacturing in the future, 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, whatever. Uh, you are an optimist about the continuation of the American manufacturing base? Yeah, I am, because I think I even had it in my book, maybe it was one of my blogs, that the reason that we won the Second World War is because we outproduced our enemies. And it's just a shame that the workforce that won the Second World War is now getting outsourced to pick an underdeveloped country, any third world country you want. It's just a shame now that uh, our workforce and, and our American companies are almost the equivalent of room service to the Chinese. But when you think about the fact that our workforce, they were so engaged, government and, and business, uh, by the way, in the Second World War, as you probably know, they, were, they worked together. They didn't work against each other like they do now. And if you look at the, the fact that we won the Second World War because we had the world's best workforce and we had collaboration between the government and business, if we could just get that back again, there's no reason we couldn't win the next, oh, what, what, and that was even on one of your blogs, the global trade wars that we're either now in or going to be in pretty soon. Yeah, maybe we won't get it back by bribes and threats. Maybe we'll get it back by true innovation within manufacturing. That's in terms of the government's role toward manufacturing. And we just need the government yeah. to be a little more friendly toward uh, business, that's all. Well, we'll have to see how it all plays out in the yeah, next few yeah. years. But, uh, Who knows? Well, the book is not called Fat, Dumb, and Happy. The book is called American Manufacturing 2.0, What Went Wrong and How to Make It Right. The author is Stephen L. Blue. Steve, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. We'll link to your book in our show notes to the episode. Thanks very much for your time. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, it's good talking to you. Thanks so much. That was my conversation with Stephen L. Blue, 
author and CEO of Miller Ingenuity, talking about how to restore America's manufacturing prowess. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.